0: Music, Hope, Word, and Prayer, a podcast of rich music, hopeful prayer, and inspiring meditations with East Brentwood Presbyterian Church, a community church in the greater metropolitan area of Nashville, Tennessee. We are a faith community made up of a loving, welcoming family of believers in honest conversation with God. We seek to emulate the ministry of Jesus through compassionate service, with stimulating and relevant exploration of God's word, and by sharing that word and God's many blessings with our neighbors in Middle Tennessee and around the world.
1: Hey, it's John Hilley, uh, Pastor East Brentwood Presbyterian Church, and Nate, Nate Strasser, our uh, music director. I have a question to you, Nate. Okay. What are the three most important words to say?
2: It's got to be, you are right, dear John or whoever I'm talking to. No, I'm just kidding. It is, of course, I love you. It is something I heard growing up, and as a father, I try to have these words guide my actions.
1: Mm, all right. Um, well, you you knowing your folks, I know that you are loved, and knowing how you are a great dad, I am sure your two boys know that they're loved. Um, you know, I, there's a book that I... Um, I share a lot, especially with people who have uh, older adults who are struggling a little bit. And it's a book by uh, Ira Bayok, who talks about the four most important uh, phrases that one must say, especially at end of life, but all throughout life. And um, those important phrases are, uh, thank you, please forgive me, I forgive you, and I love you. And then there's a fifth one, which is goodbye in the case of um, some of our loved ones who are, are, are at end of life. Um, and so it's interesting. Uh, two of those four in Ira Bajock's book is having to do with forgiveness. Please forgive me. I forgive you. And in light of a story from Scripture, uh, which I'm going to tell, the story is found in Luke seven thirty six to the end of the chapter. I am wondering if the words, Nate, I love you are not the three uh, most important words, but I forgive you. And the scene from Jesus's ministry helps explain what I mean. It's an odd little scene, and at its core, there's this woman whose name we never learn, and there's a Pharisee named Simon. Simon the Pharisee, who has a dinner party that goes horribly awry. You heard the story on Sunday.
2: Yeah, as you read it, I found myself not liking this Simon dude. He's kind of (laughs) arrogant, judgmental, self-righteous, he looks down on everyone and is scornful of both the woman because of her reputation and Jesus for not treating her with the disdain that Simon believes she deserves.
1: He, he was indeed. But the the fact of the matter remains that we can be as well. We can be arrogant. We can be judgmental. And the truth hurts. And the truth hurts when it comes to forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard uh, to receive and to offer. You know, Anne Lamott said, you want to know how big God's love is? The answer is, it's very big, she says. It's bigger than you're comfortable with. And indeed, that was the case for Simon. You know, some, some years uh, ago, the Templeton Foundation, I think it was in 2020, uh, funded a major nationwide study on people's attitudes towards forgiveness. It was co-sponsored by the University of Michigan and the National Institute for Mental Health. You can find the study at templeton.org. Uh, so, hey, Nate, if I was to ask you what the study found when it came to Americans feeling very confident that they have been forgiven by God, what would you say the percentage of uh, very confident— would you say 25 50% 75% or somewhere in between what would it be
2: I'm going to go with I'm going to go with 75 feels about right
1: Well you were listening on Sunday it was 70 It was a test whether I was listening to you it, it was 75% uh, who feel very confident that they've been forgiven by God uh, v- v- listener where are you with that uh, the lead researcher, Dr. Loren Toussaint, uh, expressed great surprise at such a high confidence, especially since many of these same people, they're not regular church attenders. And now, uh, follow-up question, Nate, when it came to interpersonal relations, what would you say was the percentage of um, those who uh, were certain that they had forgiven others?
2: I'm not as sure on this one. I'm going to go 25%.
1: Well, boy, yeah, you, you 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 didn't give people the benefit of the doubt there at all. It's about half of the people, fifty percent survey, claimed that they were certain that they had forgiven others. And you know, most people, as you can see from these two um, the questions, were uh, admitted that whereas God may be a galaxy class forgiver, ordinary fo- folks struggle. And it's you know, it's difficult to forgive other people with whom you're angry, and it's even difficult to forgive yourself sometimes. And where people did, uh, they found out that there was a link between uh, forgiveness and, and and healthy. So Nate, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think when we forgive, we release a hold not only
2: on the other person, but also on the grudge and resentments we are holding, the, the judgment we can harbor, and we release our hold on a life dominated by the
1: past. Wow, you sound like a philosopher. I, there. I
2: know, I really... Whew deep thinking here. Um, I I think the timing is good with our focus on forgiveness, as this hits right around Father's Day. Many people have troubled relationships with their father, and Father's Day is celebrated around the world, not necessarily all on the same day, but um, to recognize the positive contribution that fathers and father figures make to their children.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, good. Well, in this episode, we have a big theme, forgiveness, but also a big need, so what music is going to fit this theme?
2: Yeah, I have an arrangement of There is a wideness in God's mercy, a sort of a lesser-known hymn, but one of my favorites. I'm bringing in that really talks about forgiveness in a variety of ways. So, welcome listener to this episode of On Forgiveness. We hope you find what follows helpful. A song we sang this Sunday is our prayer to start this episode, and after the music, John will be back to reflect on this rather odd but important story from the scriptures. So, here's the prayer. Come away from rush and hurry to the stillness of God's peace. From our vain ambition's worry, come to Christ and find release. Come away from noise and clamor, life's demands and frenzied pace. Come to join the people gathered here to seek and find God's face. In the pastures of God's goodness, we lie down to rest our souls. From the waters of her mercy, we drink deeply and are made whole.
1: So there's this odd but important story in Luke 7, and it goes as this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took place at, at the table. And then in verse 37, and a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. So Jesus is dining at the home of Simon the Pharisee, who we have already established that um, we just don't like the guy. But before we go any further, it is important to remind ourselves and maybe to unlearn what we had learned growing up in Sunday school about the Pharisees. Uh, We don't like him because he was a Pharisee, but uh, because, you know, truth be told about the Pharisees is what I've been learning is that uh, they uh, were actually the good guys in first century Judaism. Judaism. The Pharisees were the ones who cared deeply about their faith. They were the ones who took responsibility for the flourishing of the faith. They, Even though they had other jobs, they volunteered in their spare time at the synagogue to make sure the congregation flourished. And that meant the Pharisees were, well, the equivalent of um, a board member or an elder, in the case of the Presbyterian Church, and they were the ones who really cared. And Jesus is dining at the home of one of those Pharisees, And into this gathering comes an unnamed woman, and she just doesn't come into the gathering. She disrupts it, first by her mere presence. Now, Luke describes her as a sinner. The precise nature of her sin is not named, and we shouldn't try to guess. And I was thinking, I don't know about you, but how prone I can be to make assumptions and guess about other people. And the assumptions and what we guess about her may say a whole lot more about us than about her. We are good at jumping to assumptions, aren't we? Now, Luke doesn't tell us what this woman has done. He doesn't describe her condition or plight. Scholars point out that Luke uses the tag sinner, which in all kinds of ways is salt and peppered across the gospel, including the last few chapters when Peter says to Jesus after after the miraculous catch of fish, Lord, I am a sinner, Peter says. So rather than guess her sin at, at the end of the day, it just doesn't matter. Let's focus instead upon how others, including Simon, what they know about it. So the disturbance of her presence escalates to her behavior. She doesn't just sit quietly in the background. She lavishes attention on Jesus, the guest of honor. And some pretty out of bounds behavior. The question isn't whether people are going to be talking about it, it is what they would be saying. Like, you know, remember how we talked for weeks about how Will Smith clocked Chris Rock at the Academy Awards? And all of this is what gets Simon the Elder and the confirmation teacher thinking, actually, kind of smirking at Jesus's expense. So continuing with this story from the scriptures, Luke chapter 7, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him that she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to Simon, I have something to say to you. And then he goes on and tells the story of a certain creditor who had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. The text says the Pharisee said to himself under his breath, if this man was really a prophet, He would know what kind of woman this was. Well, it turns out Jesus is really a prophet, and he knows not only what kind of woman this is, but he knows what kind of man Simon is, what Simon is thinking. So with that parable... One is 500 denarii worth 25,000 bucks, with the other 50 denarii, about 2,500 bucks. Simon answers the guy who owed 500 denarii. It's a setup by Jesus, of course. And if you keep reading the story, Jesus then compares Simon's basic lack of social manners with the woman's extravagant hospitality, whereas the woman knows both her sin and her forgiveness. And consequently, 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 lives out her gratitude very demonstrably. Simon, on the other hand, doesn't act particularly grateful, if you notice. Why? And I reckon because he doesn't think he has been forgiven anything, or maybe he even needs forgiveness in the first place. And why do I think that? It's right there in verse 47, because Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins which were many have been forgiven, since she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. You know, each of us has to sort out where we are when it comes to forgiveness. We talk all the time about forgiveness that and that it's always a good thing, which it is. In fact, The longer I live in this world and the more I tend to the relationships that are important to me, I've come to believe that these may be the three most important words. I forgive you, both to say and to hear. The other three words, I love you, are really important, but no matter how much we profess our love, we fall short. And frankly, So does the other person to whom we say these words. And I like that David Lose has called our attention to this, certainly my attention to this, as he says, they are not, we are not, despite our best efforts, fully loving persons, which is why he says, I forgive you may end up being the three words that make the other three words even half believable. there's a caveat i forgive you their wonderful relationship restoring words only when you think you need to hear them And that seems to be the situation with this woman. She was aware that she had fallen short of God's dreams for her and bad about it and regretted it. And so when she heard that she was forgiven, and from the grammar and structure of the story, I hope you'll take a look at it, Luke 7, we can kind of assume that Jesus must have met her earlier and extended forgiveness. And when she heard that she was forgiven and that the future was open, could it be? That is why we find her in this story expressing her gratitude so demonstrably, publicly, because she couldn't help it. Which is the way it goes when you know you your need and you receive forgiveness. When you've been forgiven, all that is left is gratitude. And when you forgive others... much of all that's left is freedom and possibility. While there's nothing better than being offered forgiveness if you know you need it, the flip side is there is simultaneously nothing worse than being offered forgiveness if you feel like you don't need it. Take, for instance, some years ago, after she and her husband left the White House, former First Lady Pat Nixon was asked by an interviewer what the low point of the Watergate scandal was for her. And without hesitation, she said, it was the day Gerald Ford pardoned my husband. And before the reporter could ask a follow-up question, Pat Nixon continued, he did nothing wrong. And there it is. A pardon is a word of forgiveness, and it implies need, guilt, offense, brokenness, things we would do almost anything to deny. No wonder the close of the story, there are those who are gathered around the table at the dinner table uh, at the Pharisee's house, asking themselves, who is this who presumes to forgive others? Verse 47, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Again, referring back to uh, David Lowe's, he says about this story from Scripture, he, he goes further. You know, he said, this is why Jesus was killed. And when he said that, in a, it caught my attention. You know, did you ever wonder what makes people so mad at Jesus that they would actually plot to have him killed and then execute his murder? After all, it seems like all he does in the gospel is to proclaim the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God by teaching people, healing people, He fed a lot of people, and he forgave a lot of sins. And what's so bad about that? David Lose goes on to say it was over Jesus' forgiving of sins that got him killed. And truth be told, he said, if Jesus came around again doing the same things today, we'd probably kill him again. (laughs) We don't like to think that, but I suspect he's right. Now, don't get me wrong, I... I know we love Jesus, but no one, not any one of us, not me, not you, not anyone, wants to admit brokenness, guilt, need. Why? Why? Well, as I've been thinking about it this week, it's because admitting all of that stuff obliterates our illusions about being, what, self-sufficient, about being in control Because you turn through the pages of Scripture and time and humanity has been plagued about this keen act to make it on our own, to be sufficient to the challenges, and ultimately to make it on our own to need no one and not even God. Because need implies vulnerability, and vulnerability can be terrifying. Now, a lot of the time we're able to think that we're not dependent on anyone. We can at least, though, um, and we like, to add, no, we like to act in a way to keep up the illusion that we are con- dependent on anyone. And until Jesus comes along and offers us forgiveness and blows all of that pretense out of the water that we think we're self-sufficient on our own, reminding us that we're dependent upon a God of grace and mercy for pretty much everything. Yeah, Nate was not alone in not liking Simon, finding him arrogant and judgmental. At the end of the day, truth be told, we're not that much different from Simon. If Jesus only knew what kind of woman this was, when Simon says this, he makes himself simultaneously contemptible, but also relatable. Jesus is actually more than a prophet. He's also the Lord, the Son of the living God. And he knows what kind of person Simon is, and he knows what kind of people we are, what we're judging, or what we're lamenting. He knows how we've fallen short innumerable times, and we will again. And yet he comes to us, for us, anyway, because that's what love does. It refuses to count the cost. But it's even more than that. As Jesus is Lord, he... Not only comes and dies, he's also raised again. And then we're totally stuck because here he is still knowing us, still loving us, still forgiving us. Thankfully, we can't get rid of the guy. And so this time we realize there's no way out. Standing in front of the resurrected Lord, offering us nothing but love and forgiveness. We die to this pretense of thinking that we are an island unto ourselves or to the denial, or to the delusion only to be raised again by that same love that Jesus has embodied and offered all along, which is why Jesus died and is raised again, so that we might know both the painful truth about our life in this world, that we fall short, and that we are all in need of forgiveness, and even the greater truth about God, that God will continue to love and forgive us all the way through this life, even through death, On to new life. and If we, upon hearing these words, begin to weep like the woman in the story in Luke 7, then who knows, maybe this is why Luke declines to name her to offer us a person with whom we can identify with whom we can actually be. If I'm hearing these words, we weep. Mercy, grace, forgiveness has such an otherworldly character that it can make you stop and cry, and maybe you have experienced it pierced by the beauty of a thing you didn't even know existed. And then it propels you into this world to do extravagant, even embarrassing things out of gratitude and love. Again, when you've been forgiven, all that's left is gratitude. And when you forgive others, pretty much all that's left is freedom and possibility. So yes, this is why Jesus died and why He was raised again so we might know our need, that we might have this need met in love, and so we might go out and share that love with others. Here's the prayer. God wrestling with these ancient stories, telling us some truth about our own lives and even greater truth about God, may these words and our interaction with the words of the ancient text help us this day. Trusting that the God who created light from darkness in the world and created the world out of nothing can take what we offer and uh, use it to restore, even recreate us. Enable us to hear both the worst and the best words in the world. I love you. I forgive you. Support us all in life and in death. And bring us through death to new life. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining East Brentwood Presbyterian Church today for music, hope, word, and prayer. To learn more about the life and ministry of EBPC, our commitment to being a Matthew 25 congregation, or to support this ministry with a financial contribution, visit us at our website, EBPCTN.org. Or visit us on Facebook at East Brentwood PC, or subscribe to our YouTube channel eBPC videos.